Part two of chapter eight of the loss of the SS Titanic by Lawrence Beasley. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recorded by Allison Hester. Chapter eight, part two. The lessons taught by the loss of the Titanic. It will be well now to consider briefly the various appliances that have been suggested to ensure the safety of passengers and crew, and in doing so, it may be remembered that the average man and woman has the same right as the expert to consider and discuss these things. They are not so technical as to prevent any one of ordinary intelligence from understanding their construction. Using the term in its widest sense, we come first to bulkheads and watertight compartments. It is impossible to attempt a discussion here of the exact constructional details of these parts of a ship. But in order to illustrate briefly what is the purpose of having bulkheads, we may take the Titanic as an example. She was divided into 16 compartments by 15 transverse steel walls called bulkheads. If a hole is made in the side of the ship in any one compartment, steel watertight doors seal off the only openings in that compartment and separate it as a damaged unit from the rest of the ship, and the vessel is brought to land in safety. Ships have even put into the nearest port for inspection after collision, and finding only one compartment full of water and no other damage, have left again for their home port without troubling to disembark passengers and effect repairs. The design of the Titanic's bulkheads calls for some attention. The Scientific American, in an excellent article on the comparative safety of the Titanic's and other types of watertight compartments, draws attention to the following weaknesses in the former, from the point of view of possible collision with an iceberg. She had no longitudinal bulkheads, which would subdivide her into smaller compartments and prevent the water filling the whole of a large compartment. Probably, too, the length of a large compartment was, in any case, too great, 53 feet. The Mauritania, on the other hand, in addition to transverse bulkheads, is fitted with longitudinal torpedo bulkheads, and the space between them and the side of the ship is utilized as a coal bunker. Then, too, in the Mauritania, all bulkheads are carried up to the top deck, whereas, in the case of the Titanic, they reached in some parts only to the saloon deck, and in others to a lower deck still. The weakness of this being that, when the water reached to the top of a bulkhead as the ship sank by the head, it flowed over and filled the next compartment. The British Admiralty, which subsidizes the Mauritania and the Lusitania as fast cruisers in time of war, insisted on this type of construction, and it is considered vastly better than that used in the Titanic. The writer of the article thinks it is possible that these ships might not have sunk as the result of a similar collision. But the ideal ship from the point of bulkhead construction, he considers to have been the Great Eastern, constructed many years ago by the famous engineer Brunel. So thorough was her system of compartments divided and subdivided by many transverse and longitudinal bulkheads that when she tore a hole 80 feet long in her side by striking a rock, she reached port in safety. Unfortunately, the weight and cost of this method was so great that his plan was subsequently abandoned. 
but it would not be just to say that the construction of the titanic was a serious mistake on the part of the white star line or her builders on the ground that her bulkheads were not so well constructed as those of the lusitania and mauritania which were built to fulfill british admiralty regulations for time of war an extraordinary risk which no builder of a passenger steamer as such would be expected to take into consideration when designing the vessel it should be constantly borne in mind that the titanic met extraordinary conditions on the night of the collision she was probably the safest ship afloat in all ordinary conditions collision with an iceberg is not an ordinary risk but this disaster will probably result in altering the whole construction of bulkheads and compartments to the great eastern type in order to include the one in a million risk of iceberg collision and loss here comes in the question of increased cost of construction and in addition the great loss of cargo carrying space with decreased earning capacity both of which will mean an increase in the passenger rates this the traveling public will have to face and undoubtedly will be willing to face for the satisfaction of knowing that what was so confidently affirmed by passengers on the titanic's deck that night of the collision will then be really true that we are on an unsinkable boat so far as human forethought can devise after all this must be the solution to the problem how best to ensure safety at sea other safety appliances are useful and necessary but not usable in certain conditions of weather the ship itself must always be the safety appliance that is really trustworthy and nothing must be left undone to ensure this wireless apparatus and operators the range of the apparatus might well be extended but the principal defect is the lack of an operator for night duty on some ships the awful fact that the californian lay a few miles away able to save every soul on board and could not catch the message because the operator was asleep seems too cruel to dwell upon even on the carpathia the operator was on the point of retiring when the message arrived and we should have been much longer afloat and some boats possibly swamped had he not caught the message when he did it has been suggested that officers should have a working knowledge of wireless telegraphy and this is no doubt a wise provision it would enable them to supervise the work of the operators more closely and from all the evidence this seems a necessity the exchange of vitally important messages between a sinking ship and those rushing to her rescue should be under the control of an experienced officer to take but one example bride testified that after giving the burma the cqd message and the position and getting a reply they got into touch with the carpathia and while talking with her were interrupted by the burma asking what was the matter no doubt it was the duty of the burma to come at once without asking any questions but the reply from the titanic telling the burma's operator not to be a fool by interrupting seems to have been a needless waste of precious moments to reply we are sinking would have taken no longer especially when in their own estimation of the strength of the signals they thought the burma was the nearest ship it is well to notice that some large liners have already a staff of three operators 
Submarine Signaling Apparatus There are occasions when wireless apparatus is useless as a means of saving life at sea promptly. One of its weaknesses is that when the ship's engines are stopped, messages can no longer be sent out, that is, with the system at present adopted. It will be remembered that the Titanic's messages got gradually fainter and then ceased altogether as she came to rest with her engines shut down. Again, in fogs, and most accidents occur in fogs, while wireless informs of the accident, it does not enable one ship to locate another closely enough to take off her passengers at once. There is, as yet, no method known by which wireless telegraphy will fix the direction of a message, and after a ship has been in fog for any considerable length of time, it is more difficult to give the exact position to another vessel bringing help. Nothing could illustrate these two points better than the story of how the Baltic found the Republic in the year 1909 in a dense fog off Nantucket Lightship, when the latter was drifting helplessly after collision with the Florida. The Baltic received a wireless message stating the Republic's condition and the information that she was in touch with Nantucket through a submarine bell, which she could hear ringing. The Baltic turned and went towards the position in the fog, picked up the submarine bell signal from Nantucket, and then began searching near this position for the Republic. It took her 12 hours to find the damaged ship, zigzagging across a circle within which she thought the Republic might lie. In a rough sea, it is doubtful whether the Republic would have remained afloat long enough for the Baltic to find her and take off all her passengers. Now, on these two occasions, when wireless telegraphy was found to be unreliable, the usefulness of the submarine bell at once becomes apparent. The Baltic could have gone unerringly to the Republic in the dense fog had the latter been fitted with a submarine emergency bell. It will perhaps be well to spend a little time describing the submarine signaling apparatus to see how this result could have been obtained. Twelve anxious hours in a dense fog on a ship which was injured so badly that she subsequently foundered is an experience which every appliance known to human invention should be enlisted to prevent. Submarine signaling has never received that public notice which wireless telegraphy has for the reason that it does not appeal so readily to the popular mind. That it is an absolute necessity to every ship carrying passengers, or carrying anything for that matter, is beyond question. It is an additional safeguard that no ship can afford to be without. There are many occasions when the atmosphere fails lamentably as a medium for carrying messages. When fog falls down, as it does sometimes in a moment, on hundreds of ships coasting down the trafficways round our shores, ways which are defined so easily in clear weather and with such difficulty in fogs, the hundreds of lighthouses and lightships which serve as warning beacons and on which many millions of money have been spent are, for all practical purposes, as useless to the navigator as if they had never been built. He is just as helpless as if he were back in the years before 1514 when Trinity House was granted a charter by Henry the Eighth for the relief of the shipping of this realm of England, 
and began a system of lights on the shores, of which the present chain of lighthouses and lightships is the outcome. Nor is the foghorn much better. The presence of different layers of fog and air, and their varying densities, which cause both reflection and refraction of sound, prevent the air from being a reliable medium for carrying it. Now, submarine signaling has none of these defects, for the medium is water, subject to no such variable conditions as the air. Its density is practically non-variable, and sound travels through it at the rate of 4,400 feet per second without deviation or reflection. The apparatus consists of a bell designed to ring either pneumatically from a light ship, electronically from the shore, the bell itself being a tripod at the bottom of the sea, automatically from a floating bell buoy, or by hand from a ship or boat. The sound travels from the bell in every direction, like waves in a pond, and falls, it may be, on the side of a ship. The receiving apparatus is fixed inside the skin of the ship and consists of a small iron tank, 16 inches square and 18 inches deep. The front of the tank facing the ship's iron skin is missing and the tank, being filled with water, is bolted to the framework and sealed firmly to the ship's side by rubber facing. In this way, a portion of the ship's iron hull is washed by the sea on one side and water in the tank on the other. Vibrations from a bell ringing at a distance fall on the iron side, travel through, and strike on two microphones hanging in the tank. These microphones transmit the sound along wires to the chart room, where telephones convey the message to the officer on duty. There are two of these tanks, or receivers, fitted against the ship's side, one on the port and one on the starboard side, near the bows, and as far down below the water level as is possible. The direction of sounds coming to the microphones hanging in these tanks can be estimated by switching alternately to the port and starboard tanks. If the sound is of greater intensity on the port side, then the bell signaling is off the port bows, and similarly on the starboard side. The ship is turned towards the sound until the same volume of sound is heard from both receivers, when the bell is known to be dead ahead. So accurate is this in practice that a trained operator can steer his ship in the densest fog directly to a light ship or any other point where a submarine bell is sending its warning beneath the sea. Not subject to any of the limitations and variations imposed on the atmosphere, and the ether as media for the transmission of light, blasts of a foghorn, and wireless vibrations. At present, the chief use of submarine signaling is from the shore or a light ship to ships at sea, and not from ship to ship or from ship to the shore. In other words, ships carry only receiving apparatus, and lighthouses and lightships use only signaling apparatus. Some of the lighthouses and lightships on our coasts already have these submarine bells, in addition to their lights, and in bad weather the bells send out their messages to warn ships of their proximity to a danger point. This invention enables ships to pick up the sound of bell after bell on a coast and run along it in the densest fog, almost as well as in daylight. 
passenger steamers coming into port do not have to wander about in the fog, groping their way blindly into harbor. By having a coat of rings, and judging by the intensity of the sound, it is possible to tell almost exactly where a ship is in relation to the coast or to some light ship. The British Admiralty report in 1906 said, If the light ships round the coast were fitted with submarine bells, it would be possible for ships fitted with receiving apparatus to navigate in fog with almost as great certainty as in clear weather. And the following remark of a captain engaged in coast service is instructive. He had been asked to cut down expenses by omitting the submarine signaling apparatus, but replied, I would rather take out the wireless. That only enables me to tell other people where I am. The submarine signal enables me to find out where I am myself. The range of the apparatus is not so wide as that of wireless telegraphy, varying from 10 to 15 miles for a large ship, although instances of 20 to 30 are on record, and from 3 to 8 miles for a small ship. At present, the receiving apparatus is fixed on only some 650 steamers of the merchant marine, these being most frequently the first-class passenger liners. There is no question that it should be installed, along with wireless apparatus, on every ship of over 1,000 tons gross tonnage. Equally important is the provision of signaling apparatus on board ships. It is obviously just as necessary to transmit a signal as to receive one, but at present the sending of signals from ships has not been perfected. The invention of signal transmitting apparatus to be used while the ship is underway is as yet in the experimental stage, but while she is at rest, a bell similar to those used by lighthouses can be sunk over her side and rung by hand with exactly the same effect. But liners are not provided with them. They cost only 60 pounds. As mentioned before, with another 60 pounds spent on the Republic's equipment, the Baltic could have picked up her bell and steered direct to her, just as they both heard the bell of Nantucket Lightship. Again, if the Titanic had been provided with the bell, and the Californian with receiving apparatus, neither of them was, the officer on the bridge could have heard the signals from the telephones near. A smaller size for use in lifeboats is provided, and would be heard by receiving apparatus for approximately five miles. If we had hung one of these bells over the side of the lifeboats afloat that night, we should have been free from the anxiety of being run down as we lay across the Carpathia's path without a light. Or, if we had gone adrift in a dense fog and wandered miles apart from each other on the sea, as we inevitably should have done, the Carpathia could still have picked up each boat individually by means of the bell signal. In those ships fitted with receiving apparatus, at least one officer is obliged to understand the working of the apparatus, a very wise precaution, and, as suggested above, one that should be taken with respect to wireless apparatus also. It was a very great pleasure to me to see all this apparatus in manufacture and in use at one of the principal submarine signaling works in America, and to hear some of the remarkable stories of its value in actual practice. I was struck by the aptness of the motto adopted by them. 
de profundas clamavi in relation to the titanic's end and the calls of our passengers from the sea when she sank out of the deep have i called unto thee is indeed a suitable motto for those who are doing all they can to prevent such calls arising from their fellow men and women out of the deep fixing of steamship routes the lanes along which the liners travel are fixed by agreement among the steamship companies in consultation with the hydrographic departments of the different countries these routes are arranged so that the east-bound steamers are always a number of miles away from those going west and thus the danger of collision between east and west-bound vessels is entirely eliminated the lanes can be moved farther south if icebergs threaten and north again when the danger is removed of course the farther south they are placed the longer the journey to be made and the longer the time spent on board with consequent grumbling by some passengers for example the lanes since the disaster to the titanic have been moved one hundred miles farther south which means one hundred and eighty miles longer journey taking eight hours the only real precaution against colliding with icebergs is to go south of the place where they are likely to be. There is no other way. Lifeboats The provision was, of course, woefully inadequate. The only humane plan is to have a numbered seat in a boat assigned to each passenger and member of the crew. It would seem well to have this number pointed out at the time of booking a berth and to have a plan in each cabin showing where the boat is and how to get to it the most direct way, a most important consideration with a ship like the Titanic with over two miles of deck space. Boat drills of the passengers and crew of each boat should be held under compulsion as soon as possible after leaving port. I asked an officer as to the possibility of having such a drill immediately after the gangways are withdrawn and before the tugs are allowed to haul the ship out of dock, but he says the difficulties are almost insuperable at such a time. If so, the drill should be conducted in sections as soon as possible after sailing, and should be conducted in a thorough manner. Children in school are called upon suddenly to go through fire drill, and there is no reason why passengers on board ship should not be similarly trained so much depends on order and readiness in time of danger undoubtedly the whole subject of manning provisioning loading and lowering of lifeboats should be in the hands of an expert officer who should have no other duties the modern liner has become far too big to permit the captain to exercise control over the whole ship and all vitally important subdivisions should be controlled by a separate authority it seems a piece of bitter irony to remember that on the Titanic a special chef was engaged at a large salary, larger perhaps than that of any officer, and no boatmaster, or some such officer, was considered necessary. The general system again, not criminal neglect, as some hasty criticisms would say, but lack of consideration for our fellow man, the placing of luxurious attractions above that kindly forethought that allows no precaution to be neglected for even the humblest passenger but it must not be overlooked that the provision of sufficient lifeboats on deck is not evidence they will all be launched easily 
or all the passengers taken off safely. It must be remembered that ideal conditions prevailed that night for launching boats from the decks of the Titanic. There was no list that prevented the boats getting away. They could be launched on both sides, and when they were lowered, the sea was so calm that they pulled away without any of the smashing against the side that is possible in rough seas. Sometimes it would mean that only those boats on the side sheltered from a heavy sea could ever get away, and this would at once half the boat accommodation, and when launched there would be the danger of swamping in such a heavy sea. All things considered, lifeboats might be the poorest sort of safeguard in certain conditions. Life rafts are said to be much inferior to lifeboats in a rough sea, and collapsible boats made of canvas and thin wood soon decay under exposure to weather and are danger traps at a critical moment. Some of the lifeboats should be provided with motors, to keep the boats together and to tow if necessary. The launching is another important matter. The Titanic's davits worked excellently and no doubt were largely responsible for all the boats getting away safely. They were far superior to those on most liners. Pontoons. After the sinking of the Bourgogne, when two Americans lost their lives, a prize of four thousand pounds was offered by their heirs for the best life-saving device applicable to ships at sea. A board sat to consider the various appliances sent in by competitors, and finally awarded the prize to an Englishman, whose design provided for a flat structure the width of the ship which could be floated off when required, and would accommodate several hundred passengers. It has never been adopted by any steamship line. Other similar designs are known, by which the whole of the after deck can be pushed over from the stern by a ratchet arrangement with air tanks below to buoy it up. It seems to be a practical suggestion. One point where Titanic management failed lamentably was to provide a properly trained crew to each lifeboat. The rowing was, in most cases, execrable. There is no more reason why a steward should be able to row than a passenger, less so than some of the passengers who were lost. Men of leisure accustomed to all kinds of sport, including rowing, and in addition probably more fit physically than a steward to row for hours on the open sea. And if a steward cannot row, he has no right to be at an oar, so that, under the unwritten rule that passengers take precedence of the crew when there is not sufficient accommodation for all, a situation that should never be allowed to arise again, for a member of the crew should have an equal opportunity with a passenger to save his life, the majority of stewards and cooks should have stayed behind, and passengers have come instead. They could not have been of less use, and they might have been of more. It will be remembered that the proportion of crew saved to passengers was 210 to 495, a high proportion. Another point arises out of these figures. Deduct 21 members of the crew who were stewardesses, and 189 men of the crew are left as against the 495 passengers. Of these, some got on the overturned collapsible boat after the Titanic sank, and a few were picked up by the lifeboats, but these were not many in all. Now, with the 17 boats brought to the Carpathia, and an average of six of the crew to man each boat, 
probably a higher average than was realized, we get a total of 102 who should have been saved as against 189 who actually were. There were, as is known, stokers and stewards in the boats who were not members of the lifeboat's crews. It may seem heartless to analyze figures in this way and suggest that some of the crew who got to the Carpathia never should have done so, but after all, passengers took their passage under certain rules, written and unwritten, and one is that in times of danger, the servants of the company in whose boats they sail shall first of all see to the safety of the passengers before thinking of their own. There were only 126 men passengers saved as against 189 of the crew, and 661 men lost as against 686 of the crew, so that actually the crew had a greater percentage saved than the men passengers, 22% against 16. But steamship companies are faced with real difficulties in this matter. The crews are never the same for two voyages together. They sign on for the one trip, then perhaps take a berth on shore as waiters, stokers in hotel furnace rooms, etc., to resume life on board any other ship that is handy when the desire comes to go to sea again. They can, in no sense, be regarded as a part of a homogeneous crew, subject to regular discipline and educated to appreciate the morale of a particular liner as a man-of-war's crew is. Searchlights. These seem an absolute necessity, and the wonder is that they have not been fitted before to all ocean liners. Not only are they of use in lighting up the sea a long distance ahead, but as flashlight signals, they permit of communication with other ships. As I write, through the window can be seen the flashes from river steamers plying up the Hudson in New York, each with its searchlight, examining the river, lighting up the bank for hundreds of yards ahead, and bringing every object within its reach into prominence. They are regularly used, too, in the Suez Canal. I suppose there is no question that the collision would have been avoided had a searchlight been fitted to the Titanic's masthead. The climatic conditions for its use must have been ideal that night. There are other things besides icebergs. Derelicts are reported from time to time, and fishermen lie in the lanes without lights. They would not always be of practical use, however. They would be of no service in heavy rain, in fog, in snow, or in flying spray, and the effect is sometimes to dazzle the eyes of the lookout. While writing of the lookout, much has been made of the omission to provide the lookout on the Titanic with glasses. The general opinion of officers seems to be that it is better not to provide them, but to rely on good eyesight and wide-awake men. After all, in a question of actual practice, the opinion of officers should be accepted as final, even if it seems to the landsmen the better thing to provide glasses. Cruising Lightships One or two internationally owned and controlled lightships fitted with every known device for signaling and communication, would rob those regions of most of their terrors. They could watch and chart the icebergs, report their exact position, the amount and direction of daily drift in the changing currents that are found there. To them, too, 
might be entrusted the duty of police patrol. End of part two of chapter eight.